I have entitled this message, God's Word Does Not Fail. Last week, the title was, My God Can Do Anything But Fail. We're getting more specific now. We're getting into the flow of the context of Romans chapter 9. And we're looking at verses uh, 6 through 13 today. And I want to tell you, just by way of uh, some introductory thoughts, that we are effectively, if I could, could put it this way, we are in, the, in a conversation with a genius here. I don't know about you, but in, in my life, one of the great thrills for me is to sit down and talk to somebody that I know already is technically classified as a genius and loves God at the same time. I love to dialogue with geniuses, even though I'm not one myself. But I, lo I love to <laughs> Those look like comfortable shoes. <laughs> Mama, what's my destiny? But <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just frustration because I have to study and it's Super Bowl Sunday. Give me a break. Anyway, I love to interact with genius. I really do. And we are at the highest point here. I am convinced that the Apostle Paul would have to be, would have to be right up there with one of the greatest geniuses that ever lived. He would have to be. To take that genius, to park him at the, the feet of Gamaliel, the greatest teacher in Israel, and have him taught the Old Testament, I would say that in the end, he probably had a better grip on the things Gamaliel taught them than Gamaliel did himself. I am personally convinced of that. I believe the student excelled the teacher with all, without any doubt. Take that kind of genius and that kind of knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures, then convert him. God personally, Jesus converted him, filled him with the Holy Spirit. So now you have genius filled with the knowledge of the Bible, filled with the enlightenment of what it means. Then, on top of that, get this, infallibly, inerrantly, supercharged and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. And you are definitely way up there in a dialogue with genius. It is divine genius. We're interacting with the mind of the Holy Spirit and the mind of a great genius all at once. If you can understand that, then you won't feel so bad moving through the intricately woven argument that he has here. It is tightly woven, very tightly woven. Griffith Thomas put it this way. He said, every statement is a link in a chain of very close reasoning. And we must constantly keep in view the place and the purpose of the apostles' argument. The main theme is that though the Jews have failed, God's word has not failed. The promises made to Israel were not based on physical descent and national life, but were associated from the very beginning with spiritual blessing and a relationship with God. The real, that is the spiritual Israel, is therefore within the limits of natural and national Israel. The distinction between the national and the spiritual Israel is seen across all the pages of the Old Testament. And it proves that the sovereignty of God had not failed. 
so that without in any way imposing on or failing the Jewish promises, God could admit the Gentiles to share in that gospel, which was the theme all the way across the Old Testament. What is happening here is the Jews hate Paul because they see him as their, their Judas. They also believe he hates them. He opens the chapter with an incredible declaration of love for them and how he lives in continual sorrow of heart for them because of their condition. But what he does from there is he wants to show them and anybody looking on or anybody coming out of Romans 8 and staring at the mass unbelief among Israel, the very fact they rejected as a whole almost, not entirely, their Messiah, to say, Paul, didn't you push it a little too far in Romans 8 with this whole thing of nothing can separate us from the love of God and God will accomplish His purposes and His promises and so on, because look at Israel. And a Jew, and by the way, from 9, 10, 11, he's put together a body of truth that you could give as a tract to a Jew in that day and bring them to Christ. So he's appealing to his countrymen that they could be saved while he's unfolding further truth about God. There is much here for us, and I want to read through the text and unfold it as we go. In verse 6, he says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not being yet born nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. And that thought right there, him who calls, connects us directly back with everything we learn in Romans 8. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. That's where we'll end up. My goal today is to make this as clear as possible, because you've just read it with me. It would not be very easy to read it once and go explain it to somebody, would it? You read it just now and thought, how is he going to get a sermon out of this? You see, all I want to know is the last verse. That's what you're thinking. There is so much here, though. And I come as a child of God who believes in Christ, and I trust him. But when I read, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I've hated, and I read of these two babies in the womb, my re initial reaction is, Lord, I love you and I trust you, but I have a really hard time with that. So we're going to find out what's going on here. To begin with, what Paul is asserting is that God's word does not fail. And we'll unfold the outline as we go. God's word does not fail. He has told them in the first few verses, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bury me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, and so on. He's told them how grieved he is for them, that he'd even almost trade in his own salvation if it could mean that they would be saved. But his grief for them is not because God's word has failed. 
On the contrary, his grief for Israel is because they rejected God's word to them. Now the parallels in this message as they relate to us today run from the beginning right now all the way down to the end. They rejected God's word. God's word didn't fail, they did by rejecting his word. That's why he brought up the issues in 4 and 5. If you look there, in verse 4 and 5, he lists off all these blessings God gave to Israel, all the privileges of being an Israelite, the adoption as a nation to God, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, all the things with the temple and the tabernacle and sacrifices and all of that. And the promises, now he's edging toward Christ, the promises all have to do with the Christ, the Savior of the world, coming through them. Finally, he says, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, he is grieved for them because in spite of all of that, they failed to recognize Christ when he came in spite of all of that they failed to see Christ in all of that in other words everything on the list has at its center Christ these are the shadow of the things to come but the body is Christ the real thing is Christ that's the whole reason he brought that up to say that in all these things Christ was in all these things let me put it a different way the main thing that's important about Israel is Christ. In other words, the importance of Israel as a nation is Christ. And it was that way from the very beginning and it is that way till now. And God is going to continue to work with them and there's much more to say about that in the coming chapters. But at, in verse 6, if you look there, he says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. The point here is this. Only those who believed in the promise of the coming Christ and walked with God were the true Israel, the true saved people. Never did God promise that just because you are an Israelite, I will save you and take you to heaven. Never. That was never the issue. That's why he says they are not all Israel who are of Israel. It is effectively the same as saying today, just because you're in church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. Here is the visible church, but among us there is the invisible church. Those are the ones that God, as he surveys us, those are the ones he knows are truly saved. There are probably those among us today that are not truly saved, and he knows exactly who you are. Here is the visible, but the real Christians going to heaven are invisible, as it were, before God. That's the point. Not all the Israelites, every part of the nation, are all promised to be saved or go to heaven. But the true Israelite is one that truly knows God by believing in the promise of the coming Christ. So the word of God did not fail. The living proof is to be found all along the way. You see, because though so many, so many, even across the pages of the Old Testament, so many of the, the Israelites did not believe in God. Many of them did. Jeremiah saw Christ in all the promises. Daniel is taken as a result of the nation rejecting Christ in all the promises and in all of the sacrifices and everything, being a godless nation. 
Daniel is taken away in a 70-year sweep of judgment to Babylon. Daniel's around the age of 15. He arrives in Babylon and takes an immediate stand, maybe even in peril of his life, uh, to take the brainwashing procedure and the king's fine food and all of that. He takes a stand as a teenager for God. We track Daniel through the book of Daniel till he's in his 90s, up around 100. And he never backslides. And he was in Babylon. He was among deep paganism, darkness. God, after he used Babylon to judge his people, took his people back and judged Babylon. But here's a man who, as a teenager, saw in the promises of God given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Christ. Daniel in chapter 9 is found reading the Old Testament scriptures. He's reading the book of Jeremiah. And he sees how he ended up in Babylon. I ended up in Babylon because God judged our people for rejecting him. And I notice here that it's going to come to an end after 70 years and he begins to really pray, confess his own sins, the sins of his people. And he's visited by Gabriel and given the vision of the 49 weeks of years, which is the timetable of when the Messiah would come and come right through the eastern gate on the donkey into Israel as the Savior of the world. So that rich revelation that could have put you sitting in the gate waiting for the Messiah, as Simeon was waiting in the temple, was given to Daniel as he was seeing Christ in the scriptures and all of these things. So there have always been those that were the true Israel. And there are always those today that ignore Christ and all that is said and preached and sit in church and don't know him still. May you not be one of those. And if you are, may today be the day of salvation for you. Will you say, Christ, I want a personal relationship with you. My parents know you, but I don't. I know about you, but I don't know you. My grandma knows you, but I don't know you. My neighbor who brought me knows you, but I don't know you. Make sure you know him before you go home and watch the Super Bowl today or you're not going to have any fun. <laughs> Just had to throw that in there. All right, because the greatest joy of all is when your sins are forgiven, then you can enjoy all the things of life that are decent and fair to enjoy. Let's go further here. Not only did God's word not fail, and what a blessed thing it is to find Simeon waiting in the temple. God told him, you won't die until you see the salvation of Israel, the promise of Israel. And Simeon stood there waiting and in through the door. Just like Paul said, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day. The eighth day they bring Christ in to be circumcised and Simeon is there. God says, you won't die until you see the salvation of your people. And he gets to take the infant Jesus and hold God in the flesh in his arms. The fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. And he just begins to worship God and even prophesies of the cross. And he says to Mary, a great sword will pierce your soul. It'll be like drugged slowly through your, the center of your being. As you watch your son die on the cross, this is your son. He's the savior of the world. What a moment. And God had told him, just, you just wait there because he's coming. Just like it said in the scriptures. So I had to just really clarify that. Because that is a sweet jewel of how God's word doesn't fail. So we go on and then we see in the verses in front of us that God's word did not fail with Abraham. That's the next thing Paul goes to. Now before we even get into this, I want to make this statement. 
All the importance of Abraham is centered in Christ. Abraham is known worldwide, but all the importance in Abraham is centered in Christ. Just want to make that statement because it all flows from there. See, Paul, having been in this place, Paul knows that the Jews thought that they were saved by being the seed of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, descendants of Abraham. That mindset was so strong in the time of Jesus that they just outright rejected what he had to say. So in verse 7, Paul writes, Nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed will be called. What is he doing? He is shattering that kind of thinking. To think you're saved by being a descendant of Abraham or saved by who your parents are, whatever. So verse 7, he says that, and then in verse 8 he goes on, he clarifies it. He says, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. What is the promise? The promise is God said to Abraham, through you all nations of the world will be blessed and that seed will come through you. The Messiah, the Savior of the world will come right down through your descendants and those that believe on him and this promise will be saved. So that's the promise. The, the children of the promise are those that are truly saved in the passage. They are counted as the seed, spiritual seed, again, the truly saved. So everything important about Abraham is centered in Christ. They thought they were saved because they were the seed of Abraham. But how was Abraham saved? He was saved by believing the promises God gave to him about Jesus Christ. That's how he was saved. Can you turn in your Bible to John? Hold your place here and go to John chapter 8 to verse 56. Abraham was saved by believing in the promise of the Christ. He literally acted that out on Mount Moriah with his son Isaac, remember? When God asked him to go sacrifice Isaac. God revealed to him, I believe, there be beyond the promises, the panorama, the drama that would take place just across the ridge on Mount Calvary. He's on Mount Moriah. That's where the temple area is in Jerusalem now. Right across the ridge is Mount Calvary where Christ died. He acted it out right there. And so here is Jesus and he's in front of the religious leaders of the day and He's giving his message and they're looking at him up and down. They're dressed in their finery. They have the most expensive religious outfits money can buy. They are very powerful. They're very arrogant. And here comes Jesus and he's dressed in a tattered, patched, peasant rabbi's robe. And he's young. These guys are old. They're erudite, learned, proud, godless men, if I could put it that way. He's preaching to them. And they stand all smug looking at him like, You little bum. You're here to tell us the way to heaven. You're nothing but a bum. You're a peasant rabbi from Galilee. You're not even from Jerusalem. This is their whole vibe. 
And so they say to him, in response to his gospel, they say, Look, we have Abraham to our father. We're going to heaven because we're direct descendants of Abraham. And everybody knows if you're a Jew, you're going to heaven because you're a descendant of Abraham. Abraham is our father. And then here's their index to their heart. These religious men are filthy, wicked men. This is what they say to him. And by the way, we don't even know who your father is. Nobody knows who your father is, which tells us everything about your mother. And so you're nothing but an illegitimate, we don't know what. We don't even know if you're a Jew. We don't even know if you're a descendant of Abraham. It is the ultimate slam on Mary. It is the ultimate slam on him as an illegitimate child. It is the ultimate rejection of who he is. And it is the ultimate trust in Abraham as their father for salvation. And what does he say to them? And believe me, this would not fly in South Orange County today in church. What he says to them is, Your father is the devil. That wouldn't go too well, would it, today in Saddleback Valley area in church? Oh my, that's just too negative. I, I, I just don't like that kind of preaching. I just want to be told how to have a happy life and do good in my sales tomorrow and increase my word processing speed. Your father's the devil. You know what? He was exactly right. And what he was saying is, don't you get it? Abraham, your father. If Abraham was your father, you'd believe what Abraham believed. And if you believed what Abraham believed, you'd realize you are staring at what Abraham believed. I am the fulfillment of everything that was promised. I'm here. It's me. And you're missing it. And your father is the devil. Because if your father was God, you would recognize me as from God and the fulfillment of everything that Abraham believed. Because Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and he was glad Abraham knew me and you do not and you do not know God Abraham was saved by believing so when you go back to Romans 9 to verse 8 when Paul says that is those who are the children of the flesh these are not the children of God that's what he's saying but the children of the promise are counted as this seed Abraham was saved because he believed in the promise of Christ and so is everyone since then and right up until today. The importance of Abraham is centered in Christ. Let's go a little further here. All the importance of Isaac is centered in Christ. Verse 7. He says in verse 7, Nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac shall your seed be called odd phrase if you take immediately what we've learned about the call of God in Romans 8 you can attach it right here God calls people to salvation we're going to learn in our next study in the gospel of John Jesus chooses his friends and you can be a friend of Jesus so those that are called in Isaac your seed will be called so here now we're brought to the whole issue of Isaac and how God works and may I say again, all the importance of Isaac is centered in Christ. Why do I say that? Because Isaac's whole existence centered in the promise of Christ. Here are these old people, Abraham and Sarah. His name is Abram. God comes to him and he says, you're going to have a son. And all this time goes by, no son. 
They're so old now. She's gone through the change of life. They're so old. God comes back. You're going to have a son. And by the way, his name Abram meant the father of many. Can you imagine? Here he is going along in life. And he's in the caravan. They get around the campfire at night. And they're just introducing themselves. Hi, what's your name? Ah, oh, my name's, you know, Levi. What's your name? I, uh, what's your name? I'm the father of many. Oh, really? How many do you have? Got a lot of little kids behind the caravan there? No, I have none. Oh, that's an interesting name, father of many, and you have none. Yes, I know. But later, the idea was later than God gave him Isaac, and he has changed his name to the father of multitudes. So you can see him sitting around the campfire on the caravan trail at night. Hi, what's your name? Ah, oh, father of multitudes. How many do you have? One. Oh, I see. Interesting thinking. But the idea was incredible divine thinking. All the importance of Isaac is centered in Christ because Isaac would have never been born if it wasn't for the promise of Christ. The only reason for Isaac's existence is Christ. God says to Abraham, through you the Christ will come, therefore he must have a child. That child, Isaac, is a miracle child born to parents past the time of childbearing. He is in every sense a child of the promise of the Christ. He would have never existed aside from the promise that the Christ would come. Is that clear? So that's the thought of bringing up an Isaac, show your seed, be called. It's all centered in the promise of the coming of Jesus as the Savior of the world. Now you look at that then, and you realize that all failure involved in this whole situation, all failure involved is in the rejection of Christ. Now watch how this works out. Why does he say in Isaac your seed will be called? Because they said, if we're descendants of Abraham, we're saved. Paul is saying, in Isaac shall your seed be called. What is he doing? He is in an indirect way bringing up the issue of another son that Abraham had. Another descendant who was around before Isaac. And what was his name? Ishmael. You see, Abraham had another descendant. And he was there before Isaac. And his name was Ishmael. And he says in verse 8, Those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And then they had Isaac. But before all that, the day came when they're sitting around and talking, and Sarah says, You know, God's been telling us you're going to have a son all these years, and look how old we are. If we're ever going to live to see the promise of God that we're going to have a son, I think the only solution is Hagar. Now the problem with all of this is that they went down to Egypt and some of the worst failures in Abraham's life are in Egypt, in failure of faith. And the other problem is he brings Hagar back from Egypt. Anytime we as God's children go out into the world, out into Egypt and bring stuff back with us, we get in trouble. So you know that, don't you? I know that. Sarah says, what you need to do is just go into Hagar and have a son by Hagar. That's his first mistake. You should never have listened to his wife. Just, that was... <laughs> you know, of course, I'm kidding. Although Adam listened to his wife. <laughs> but really, this, this was a big mess. I mean, a big mess. And so what happened... 
And I believe God created women to be the helper of the man to make them more like Christ. So that's my final statement on that, ladies. I am with you 100% today. Back to the thing I ruined. So here we are. Abraham has a son and his name is Ishmael. This is about 15 years or so before Isaac. He is a direct descendant from Abraham. In fact, his first. And he is not even a Jew when it is all said and done. Who does he become? What is the nation that comes from Ishmael? It's the Arabs. What is their religion? Islam. Do you know there are places in Arab countries today where it is illegal? We heard this from Dan Wooding just last Sunday night. It is illegal to be a Christian. If you are caught being a Christian, you will be executed. It's flat out illegal and if you're caught, you're dead. These are the descendants of Ishmael. Don't tell me, Paul says, that just because you're a descendant of Abraham, you're saved. That's not the way it works. That was never the way it worked. That's why he says, In Isaac shall your seed be called. It is a spiritual thing, and the whole thing Isaac was about was the promise of Christ, because you see, Ishmael was a direct descendant, and he went off and lived an ungodly life, and on and on and on and on, and they were enemies of the Israelites and of Isaac's descendants throughout their whole history, and they are to this day. At this point, he has demolished, utterly demolished, any thought that says, I'm saved because I'm a descendant of Abraham, because of the Ishmael thing. Now, if you understand that, you're ready to move on. God's word did not fail with Abraham. The next thought I want to give you is God's word did not fail with Isaac. And I put it this way because, as I said, all the importance of Isaac is centered in Christ. Now watch how this goes. Look at verse 10. He says, And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one, one man, even by our father Isaac. Why does he say that? It seems so odd. Here we have to ask a question. And until we ask it, we can't understand what follows. The question is, why didn't he just stop with the Ishmael analogy? It demolishes the thought of being saved by descent of Abraham physically. Why didn't he stop there? Why does he go on to bring up Jacob and Esau? Why? There has to be a reason. The answer is he is the master debater. He is the ultimate genius. He knows there are some among them who will read this and think it through and go, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, no, no, no. No, no, no. Uh, Hagar was an Egyptian. Hagar, they had that child a long time before Isaac. We're descendants of Isaac. That's it. We're descendants of Abraham through Isaac, and that's what counts. That's what counts. Paul, got you again. We're saved because we're descendants of Abraham through Isaac. So our argument still stands. Paul knows somebody's going to think that up, and he's about to demolish that. And he does it this way. He says, because the idea was two mothers, you get it? Follow this, two mothers. There's two mothers involved with Ishmael, one mother, Hagar. Then Isaac, another mother. So, Sarah. 
So in this case, he says, all right, let's go further. Let's go to one husband, one wife, one father, one mother, and two children born again. Only this time, follow this, this is amazing. This time, here are two descendants coming down from Abraham. And they are coming now through Isaac. And they have the same father and mother. They are not born years apart. They are born seconds apart. Look at this. They are even twins. They're twins. And in the end, the one who is born first, Esau, in the end, is not even a Jew. Brilliant. Utterly brilliant. Because here now, two babies, not born years apart, two babies from the same mother, from the same father, Isaac, direct descendants from Abraham, the one born first, is not even a Jew. He goes off and starts his own nation. He is an Edomite. So, now the argument is totally gone. But there's so much more in here. What is amazing is to see how God worked this through and why He did. Because at work here is election. At work here is God choosing Jacob instead of Esau. At work here is God in control. Do you realize, and you begin to see the wisdom of God, the precision of God, you begin to see why God royally elects, and if He didn't, the whole plan would fall apart. You begin to thank God. He's an electing God, and His election is based on His affection, and His affection is the fountain of His election. You with me on that? In other words, it is His nature to bless. He is all wise, and His election is just all love in the end. To save as many as possible, it's mandatory. Do you realize, and you see the wisdom unfold, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, and they're on their journey going through the wilderness, and they have to get water here and there. Different nations would say, fine, come on through. And by the way, if they were 50 people abreast, walking, it was a line 40 miles long of people. So they would pass through nations. <laughs> and as they came through these different places, when they came to the Edomites... The descendants of Esau, the Edomites, refused to let them go through their country. Flat out refused. They were their enemy. So you see the precision of God. God knows what He's doing. When God makes a choice, He knows what He's doing. So the importance of Isaac is centered in Christ. Isaac is sovereignly chosen to continue the fulfillment of the promise of Christ and one of his twin sons, Jacob, is sovereignly chosen to continue the promise of the coming of the Christ. So God sovereignly chose Jacob for his plan instead of Esau. Now, look at verse 11. It says, For the children not yet being born, or having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now, this is where everything in our brain goes tilt. 
So let me help you on this because I figured it out after 30 years of being a Christian finally. I'm so excited. I finally understand this. I've sort of understood it before, but I really finally understand it now. Do you realize this is going to help you immediately? The words are chosen. This is so brilliant. The words, the older will serve the younger. Those words are chosen from Genesis by Paul, writing to the Romans. The words, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, are chosen from Malachi. You have the beginning of the Old Testament. You have the end of the Old Testament. Now you and I admit it. We have always read this passage and seen God hovering over this woman with her babies in her womb saying, I hate your baby Esau. Man, I love that cutie Jacob. That's, admit it. That's the way we read into it. But in all reality, the statement was in Genesis, the older will serve the younger. That's it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later, God says, In Malachi, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. We'll do more with that in a minute or two, a few minutes. But please see now that God sovereignly chose Jacob, and he said, Jacob, he said that the older would serve the younger, and so Esau was born first and ended up as God had prophesied, serving his brother Jacob. I love what Spurgeon said once on the statement, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. A woman in his congregation came to him and she said, you know, I read this and I just, I can't understand why God would say that he hated Esau. And to that Spurgeon replied, that is not my difficulty, madam. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. I like that. It's funny. It's profound. It is packed with theology. You see, we are all sinful at birth. We're back to Romans 5, the descendants of Adam. How could God love any of us? So God chooses apart from all of this in His wisdom and His great love, His omniscience. More on that later. Let's read verse 11 again. For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil. Here we go. That the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. That's the prophecy given in Genesis. And the prophecy was fulfilled in Jacob's life as the younger. When? Do you know when? No. You don't. You really don't. God help them all. It was when Esau sold him his birthright. Hey, you do know. Yeah, right. So when Esau sold him his birthright, the elders served the younger. Now, this is amazing how it unfolds. The prophecy is fulfilled when Esau sells him his birthright further... In the time of David and Solomon, the Edomites, who become a very wicked people, Esau's descendants, he was wicked and they were wicked. They were conquered by David and by Solomon, so the nation, Israel, that descended from Jacob, is served by the nation that descended from Esau. The older serves the younger, both in the time of Jacob and later in the time of David and Solomon and in future prophecy as well. By the way, 
the Herods were Edomites. The Herods, King Herod that wanted to kill the baby Jesus, Edomites. So there's a lot in here. God knows what he's doing. Any failure involved here, any failure involved, is not on the part of God and his word or his ways, but any failure involved is in rejection of Christ. When you read, it was said in verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Let's talk about this. Esau, he sold his birthright. That's how he served him. I want you to see what this really is all about. Turn in your Bible to Genesis 25, 31. It's staggering. And it totally magnifies God and the way he chooses and how he knows everything before it ever happens. Genesis 25:31. The Bible tells us that Esau was a hairy man, as you're turning there. He was a hairy man. So he kind of looked like Bigfoot a little bit. And he was a hunter. And he, he got his food by hunting. Jacob, on the other hand, uh, loved to cook. And he was a gourmet cook. He had a cable show where he did some cooking at night. So Esau is out hunting maybe for days. He can't find anything. He comes back. He's, he's literally probably starving to death at that point. So he comes in and, and as usual, Jacob's scurrying around the kitchen. You know, he's got his cable show going and he's cooked up some lentil stew. And Harry comes in and says to Cookie. I'm sorry, it's the way my mind works. But anyway, here comes Harry. And he comes in, he's in bad shape. And he says, Jacob, oh, it smells so good, just like usual. You've got your gourmet lentil stew going. He says, but this time I'm dying. And he says, Jacob says, oh, really? How bad off? Dying. Please, I'm starving. Oh, okay, well, you, want, you really want some stew? Yes. All right, I'll work a deal with you. Some of your birthright. As of this day, contract. Now, Esau said, look, I'm about to die. Now watch this. What is my birthright to me? Then Jacob said, swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob. You might say, so what? The older son, he's going to inherit dad's stuff. That's the way it worked in those days. No, folks, that is not what we're talking about here. What he sold to him, what he says, what is my birthright to me? You want to know what his birthright was? He was the oldest son of Isaac, who was the miracle son of Abraham. The oldest son was to inherit the birthright. The birthright was this, that through him would come the Messiah. God would become man through his offspring. That was his birthright. And he said to his brother, I could care less. I'm hungry. Give me the paper. I'll sign it. And he is a Christ rejecter. And the Bible says, in verse 34, Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils, and he ate and he drank and he arose and he went his way, and thus he despised his birthright. The man is a Christ rejecter. The firstborn was to have the honor of having the Christ born through his line. The promise was to continue through him. He didn't care. It, it, we are told in Hebrews twelve sixteen in the New Testament that Esau is a profane man. The Romans came up with a phrase for the outside area of the temple where the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. It was, it was profanum. And it means outside the sacred place. 
Esau is called profane. That's where we get that word profane. Esau is called profane in Hebrews 12, 16. It means he had no sacred place, no sacred enclosure in his life for God. The elder were served the younger. The elder had no sacred place for God in his life and could care less about the Christ, could care less about the Savior of the world, could care less about any of it. He was a wicked man. The Bible says later he, he sought for repentance with tears but couldn't find it. And the, and the point really is, all he w- was really upset about is that he lost all the perks of the birthright, not the birthright itself. He wasn't concerned about losing Christ. He was concerned about the glory attached to it. The man was a Christ rejecter from start to finish. Esau. Esau. So we come now down to the final thing. So God's word doesn't fail. God's word didn't fail with Abraham. God's word didn't fail with Isaac. God says, I will choose Jacob and I will work my plan of redemption through him and his line. He will be Israel and I will not choose Esau for that. Esau goes on to be a Christ rejecter. Esau's nation goes on to become the Edomites. They are a godless people. And so you come to this phrase in verse 13. And here's what we find out finally. That God's word did not fail historically. God's word did not fail historically. God's word does not fail. God's word did not fail with Abraham. God's word did not fail with Isaac. And God's word did not fail historically. In other words, all the way across the entire Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, God's word did not fail. When he said the elder will serve the younger, we come to Malachi chapter 1, verse 3, and you read, Esau I have hated. That statement is made at the end of the Old Testament. So far from the day of the birth of that child. But what you see is how historically true the Word of God is. Why does Paul quote this and stick it with the quotation from Genesis? He does it only to say, to underline that the prophecy in Genesis was fulfilled and God's Word never fails. If you look at it like this, and you realize God did not hate the baby Esau. God hated what the nation became. God hates sin. They were a wicked, sinful nation. He hated what Esau and his people became. God rejectors. The quotation is brought up as an underline to the fact that God is faithful to his word and is all wise and all loving in his sovereign election. It's absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant on the part of the Apostle Paul. So now you understand that our God is a God of love, that he doesn't hate babies. And that that statement was made at the end of the Old Testament, not over the woman as she was about to give birth. You understand why we must see that God must be in charge from start to finish in salvation. Salvation is all of grace and all of God from start to finish. And if it wasn't that way, none of us would be saved. The thing would have fallen apart long ago. Now, this leaves us with a couple of thoughts. One is this. It leaves us with a solemn possibility. You look at how many Jews rejected all of that. And you look at how many people today exposed to so much of the gospel, like sitting in church right now, listening, 
there's a solemn possibility that you're sitting here today and you've probably sat here many times and your parents bring you here and they love the Lord and you sit here, but you sit here without Christ. Not all of Israel is Israel. Not all the visible church is the real church. There is those that have been saved, that have given their lives to Christ, and only Christ knows who they are, and they're scattered in church services around the world today, and they're sending many of them by people that go to church regularly, and they are church members, but they are not members of heaven. May I put it this way? Their names are on the membership roll of the church, but they're not written in the Lamb's book of life, and there is a huge difference. Where are you today? You see, we don't just study this and go, great, we understand it. The application is this. Have you trusted in the promises? Are you a child of the promise? Or do you assume that because you have godly parents or come to a church that you're going to heaven? You will go to heaven if you repent of your sins and follow Christ. Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the promise, when he came public with his ministry in the book of Mark, he opened his mouth in Mark 1.14, and this was his message, repent and believe the gospel. And the repentance must be real. It is a turning from sin to follow Christ. A.W. Tozer said, The teaching of forgiveness without any turning from sin is a great error, and it has filled the churches with deceived members and helped to fill hell with deceived souls. I love what John Blanchard said. He said, When a person becomes a Christian, the repentant sinner becomes a repenting saint. In other words, if you're truly born again today, you love the whole thought of repentance because it's repentance that brought you forgiveness. It's repentance that brought you life. It's repentance that brought you freedom. It's repentance you find every day at the throne of the grace of the God who loves you, who is intimately involved in your life. And repentance doesn't grate against your soul. It warms your heart because it brought you Christ. If it grates against your soul today, you don't know Christ. And you cannot unless you will repent. And the repentance must be genuine, and when it is, He will come into your life. You turn from your sins to trust in Christ alone, and He will come into your life, and you will manifest that He's there. There is no such thing as forgiveness of sin and Christ coming into your life when there's no intention on your part to change. If you're here today and you just say, well, I'll say yes to Jesus, sure, I believe all that. I don't want to be like these guys in the Bible that messed it all. I'll say yes then listen to the words of A.W. Tozer. To teach pardon and cleansing where there is no intention to change the life would upset heaven and turn it into a moral insane asylum. And in a hundred years you would not know heaven from hell. That's right. The gospel doesn't say you don't have to want to change. Just come and believe. Jesus said repent and believe the gospel. Come sick of your sin. Come longing to be different. Come longing to be what God created you to be. And then trust in Christ and He will rescue you from that condition. And He will by His power begin to work within you. And whom the Son sets free, you will be free indeed. And one by one, step by step, day by day, you will change. And you'll long to change more and more and more until that glorious day because you'll know that that's where the freedom is and the intimacy with Christ. Let us beware, brethren, of repentance without 
evidence. Arthur Pink, and I stop with this, said, Multitudes desire to be saved from hell. That's the natural instinct of self-preservation. Multitudes desire to be saved from hell who are quite unwilling to be saved from sin. I want my sin and I want my Jesus too. I'm afraid you cannot have it that way. And until you realize what your sin has done to you, you're not even going to want to turn from it. Are you sick of your sin? Are you sick of your bondage? Are you sick of the guilt it brings? Are you sick of the emptiness? Are you sick of the lies and deceitfulness? Are you sick of just being religious but without Christ? If you are, then you're ready to repent. And that simply means turn around and walk away from sin straight to the cross to Jesus and say, Here I am, Lord, wrecked and ruined and guilty and stained and perverted. But I believe on you. Forgive me, Christ. Save me, Christ. Save me now. Fill me with your life now. Lead me and guide me. Begin to change me now. And take me to heaven when I die. If you will do that, if you will say that to God, if you just give your heart to God like that today, He will save you. And that will be a repentance that will manifest all kinds of evidence of love for God and love for doctrine and love for His people and love for prayer because whom the Son sets free, He sets free indeed. And the Holy Spirit will come to testify of Jesus. And Jesus said, Father, I have revealed you to them and I will continue to reveal you to them. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, thank you that you are a rescuing, saving God. Thank you, Lord, that you have told us that whomsoever will, let him come. And so any that will come to you, you will not reject them today. Lord Jesus, forgive us for our sin. Forgive us for our arrogance. Forgive us for our indifference. And fill our souls with your life. Lead us, Lord, in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Grant unto us the life of God in our souls and intimate communion with you and a wondrous worshiping awe that sees your ways and adores your ways and sees that you do all things well. And we will give you all the glory as you work your life deep into our souls and your saving work deep in and through our lives. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.